friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. This week on Conversations with Consequences, we've asked Father Jeff Curvy back. He's a great friend of the shows, and he's going to be talking to us at the bottom of the hour, discussing his new book, Way of the Cross, for loved ones who have left the faith. It's really a beautiful book of prayers for us, and let's face it, which one of us doesn't have loved ones who have left the faith? And we're praying for them, we're praying them, for them to come back. So this book is uh, a way to use the way, the prayers of the way of the cross to, to work on that very important prayer intention. We're also going to kick off the show at the top of the hour with my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire. She'll be joining as co-hostess to chat with Abigail Tucker. She's just written a fascinating book looking at how truly transformative motherhood really is. It's called Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. The book is, uh, it combines some real research on the amazing ways that becoming a mother does really change us. It transforms us. And also also about her own personal journey with her family. But first, we should really spend a moment discussing the big news that came down last week from the Supreme Court for the fate of faith-based adoption care. Out of Philadelphia, Fulton v. Philadelphia, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously to allow Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia the right to place children only in homes with a mother and a father or a single parent, but not for same-sex parents, in order not to have to violate their deeply held religious beliefs. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion. I'm quoting here, the refusal of Philadelphia to contract with Catholic social services for the provision of foster care services, unless it agrees to certify same-sex couples as foster parents, cannot survive strict scrutiny and violates the First Amendment. In a press conference just hours after the decision, Beckett Senior Counsel Lori Windham called the decision a First Amendment victory that protects the right of religious organizations to serve those in need without giving up the religious beliefs that motivate their ministry. As an adoptive mother, I am very happy with this decision. One of the things that impacted me so strongly when we brought our little girl home, in her case from China, she had been in an orphanage for almost a year. And, you know, life without an engaged, loving, stable family, it really damages children. And even the few short months that she spent in an orphanage, they delayed her development in ways that were very marked. Uh, I was shocked when she was put into my arms. How little she resembled in her development other children of the same age. And she was my fifth child, so I really could understood very well exactly how the orphanage had damaged her, the lack of that one-on-one love, the heart-to-heart of a mother and a father. And what's amazing is that three or four months later, she had caught up to her peers and we hadn't done anything special. We hadn't started any therapy because we signed up for therapy through the state and, and it takes a long time to get that organized. So it never actually happened. We never got there. But just the 24 hour a day love that she was receiving from her father and I, from her siblings, the stability, the cheerfulness, the the touching, the the hugging, the loving, the, the, the things that are natural 
natural in a family that a child in care in an orphanage, uh, a, a child who's being displaced constantly can't get. It just, it cured her. It cured her and it and it allowed her to blossom and bloom in, in, in a way that was spectacular. So when I see when I see a win for Catholic Social Services, I see a win for children because Catholic Social Services has been, has been placing children for almost 200 years. They do it really well. They support the families and the kids through, through really difficult times that are expected when you do foster care. And it, it was a terrible thing that Philadelphia had used that anti-Catholic, anti-religious animus to throw them out of the public square as religious people, as people of faith, as Catholics, as, as people who, who have a higher understanding, a more noble understanding of why we're here, why we're put in this world. We, we need to bring that understanding to the public square and we need to be proud of it and defend our right to operate under our beliefs, through our beliefs, with our beliefs in the public square. So a great win for all Americans. Welcome to the show, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. So, Abby, your new book, Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct, is a big book. It's thick with information, and it's apparently about our maternal instincts. It's something that we feel that we know a lot about as women, as moms. It's a very central concept to all of us, but you felt that you could write a whole new book about the new science. So what impelled you to write this book, and what do you bring to the table on the issue of maternal instincts? Yes. So I guess for me, I was actually really shocked by how little I knew about the inside story of the maternal transformation and how it can kind of rock your world, basically. And I had seen in my own life over the course of having four children, you know, that I'd gone through this cataclysmic kind of change. And my friends, too, who gave birth, especially for the first time at various periods in their own life, had really changed in kind of a radical way. And I think a lot of us felt that maybe, you know, we just hadn't gotten enough sleep or maybe we just hadn't read the right parenting book. But then I discovered this whole literature that studies the way that women chemically and physically change in a way that supports what their bodies are doing and that you can make this really powerful argument that the brain is the key organ of childbirth, which is really not Ooh. something that I'd ever thought about going into the labor and delivery ward. I thought about <laughs> other body parts, but not the brain. <laughs> you talk about becoming a mom as the, quote, unmasking of a latent identity. What do you mean by that? So that the term unmasking was a term that I got from a neuroscientist who studies the maternal transformation in rats. And that was just kind of his way of expressing this renaissance this that happens, this rebirth. I think there's a lot of ways to say that a new self that you maybe not were complete, you were not aware of previously kind of rises to the surface. And scientists are studying, you know, what kinds of um, neurochemicals are facilitating this change and how the brain changes on like a physical level of, um, of its architecture. But the idea of an unmasking, I liked it because it spoke a little bit to the, the sweeping holistic quality of the change, this emergence of a maternal instinct, which I define as sort of a core 
pro-baby motive and a sensitization to infant cues that really kind of starts to rule your world. When my husband and I recently, uh, Abby, were watching a video, sometimes we waste time watching YouTube videos, I have to admit. It's a a shaming thing to admit, but there it is. And we were watching a YouTube video of a little camera placed in a bird box. Somebody built a box, uh, made a little hole for it, and we watched sort of on, on fast play a little bird going into the box and creating a nest and then feathering her nest and it was a huge amount of work and then she lays the eggs four little eggs and then these sort of scary looking creatures emerge who just want to eat constantly (laughs) (laughs) so you have this little bird a tiny little bird absolutely (laughs) killing herself feeding these these ugly little mouths they were really shockingly ugly the little birds and and they're insatiable in your book you start with uh, an image of a sheep farm and pregnant sheep and and I was thinking that yes there is this maternal instinct which is absolutely insatiable and and overpowering which takes over every mammal that gives birth and even birds and I'm sure iguanas and things like that but how is it different for women, this uh, this transformation, than for, for other animals? Well, it's funny that you that you say this because it's. I think the animal world can kind of lay bare some of the things that we as humans hide or, you know, are too sort of complicated to say. But basically, you know, you can see the maternal instinct in animals. And mostly I talk about mammals, so things like sheep and rats. Female sheep and especially rats, like especially female rats, they re- who haven't had pups yet, they really don't don't like babies. They actually hate babies. They run away from babies. If they hear their cries, they'll attack little rat babies. It's really kind of awful. What these female rats like is food. And actually, they like kind of hilarious foods, especially like they love Charleston chew bars and and fruit loops and circuits peanuts and all these kind of super sugary snacks. And so that's kind of their obsession. And they'll, you know, eat and eat and eat given the chance. But when these rats um, are pregnant for the first time and about to give birth, they do this 180 where they start suddenly choosing rat pups over food and become kind of obsessed with if they're given a chance to hit a bar to receive rat pups into their cage in one experiment, they'll hit this bar like hundreds and hundreds of times. And this is kind of that unmasking we're talking about. Before giving birth the first time, these animals' motive is to eat and to feed themselves and to kind of grow bigger and fatter. But once they have these babies, their motive is the babies and they, you know, become obsessed with the caring and tending for them. And it is a little scary. And I know what you mean about those those little bird mouths. I don't write a lot about birds in my book, but that uh, scientists have studied, you know, the sort of arms race that happens inside birds' nests where the those big gaping baby mouths, it's sort of like you have to have the biggest, darkest mouth to get your mom <laughs> to feed you. Um, and it is scary. I mean, being a mom is a form of devouring. You know, you you are offering your body for mammals. It's a t- in terms of like turning your fat resources uh, into milk for this baby. And so it, there is a scary element to it. And speaking of food and scary, I have four kids, too. And I feel like the thing that they maybe the biggest secret that they don't tell moms is how much of your life as a mom is spent feeding kids food. <laughs> talk, about, talk about all devouring and all consuming. But. Abby, I so I've written a book about sex differences, and it's something that I've studied a lot. And um, you you get into also not just the transformation scientifically that happens to moms, but you also write a little bit about what happens to dads. Tell us a little bit about the science behind the way parenting transforms 
each of us differently? Well, um, that's really interesting. Um, you know, we're talking about birds a little bit, and in birds, biparental care is really common. Um, there's lots of um, bird species where mom and dad basically are dividing tasks equally and guarding the nest and provisioning it, feeding those babies. For mammals, though, paternal care is actually super rare, way rarer than I thought. Only 5% of mammals have any kind of paternal care in at all. And that's because female mammals have internal gestation. So they're kind of provisioning the baby inside themselves um, in a way that the dad can't really help during the nine months of, of pregnancy or whatever it is, 22 months for elephants and a few weeks for rats or mice. And, you know, after that, uh, they are the baby mammals are primarily fed by the mother's milk. And again, the dads don't lactate. So there's not that same window of opportunity. It's like a mom bird or dad bird can catch a worm is, you know, with pretty equal skill, but dads don't lactate. So that kind of puts dads in a disadvantage. So I think for the fact that we are in the 5% of mammals that we have active dads and those dads can actually be awesome and better than moms in certain circumstances is in itself absolutely absolutely flabbergasting. Um, I think, you know, one of the keys is that there's just a lot more variability that we see in dad behavior and a dad isn't going to transform into a parent. And there are chemical ways in which dads transform. They experience drops in testosterone and stuff like that. Um, hormonal stuff, but they aren't going to go through any of that unless they make sort of the co the conscious sort of cognitive choice to hang out with the pregnant mother of their child and later the baby themselves. So they have to do, moms are born with this like chemically incentivized drive to care for their child. The dads have to care for their child in order to develop this chemically incentivized drive. So it's sort of like a similar process, but it's like an obverse kind of thing. We get a big leg up from those nine months of, of pregnancy or 10 months in some people's case. And one of the labs that I loved learning about was how they're studying how like the unborn fetus starts conditioning its mother and communicating with its mother in that time period. And this is a whole kind of hidden tango that dads just, you know, just because of internal gestation, dads just aren't part of that. If you're just joining us, we are talking with author and journalist Abigail Tucker about her new book, Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternity maternal instinct. A very fascinating topic. And we are talking about, Abigail, right now about chemical incentivization of pregnancy and how the the pregnancy prepares you chemically to, to receive that baby and feed it, feed it constantly. <laughs> <laughs> stay up all night with it for weeks and weeks on end. I had, I have four children also like you guys, but then I adopted and I was able to experience mothering without the chemical incentive. And it was really transformational. My, my whole idea of mothering, I didn't realize until someone placed a toddler in my arms and I knew intellectually that I was her mother, but I wasn't her, I, chemically I wasn't prepared. And it was an amazing process to become her mother in uh, in a very in, in, an, in an intellectual and human way. But I feel, and maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, I feel that eventually my hormones kicked in. It took a few weeks, and then suddenly I felt that bonding, which did feel very physical and very neurological to me. Yeah. So that's I think that's exactly what the science bears out. That humans, you know, when we make the decision to care for a child, we undergo a hormonal change that is you know, that happens a little more slowly. It's not that necessarily that instant giving birth epiphany kind of moment, but 
that is just as powerful unfurling over maybe the weeks and months that you first have your child. And scientists have compared adoptive mothers and biological moms and shown how there is this mirroring of, you know, the amount of, say, oxytocin in their systems when they're looking at their baby, whether it's their biological baby or their adoptive baby, that's very, very similar. And in rats, you know, scientists study how by injecting rats with like various chemicals associated with birth, progesterone, estrogen, oxytocin, you can kind of make uh, induced maternal behavior in a rat that hasn't given birth. But by the same token, you can put one of these virgin rats, as they call them, in a cage with a bunch of babies. And at first, he's really freaked out because <laughs> as we've talked about, the, mo- the non-mother rats really don't like babies. But if you're able to keep her in there for about a week and kind of referee things so nobody gets hurt, she actually begins to change and her brain begins to grow and change in a way that you know might seem very familiar to a lot of adoptive moms. What's interesting, though, is that I guess I had digested a little too much cute internet news myself about, oh, you know, uh, this mom in the wild has adopted, you know, uh, a baby, a baby lioness has adopted a baby antelope, you know, isn't that cute? I I guess I didn't realize that, you know, mostly that's apocryphal and um, in humans are almost pretty much unique in their adoption capacities and that, you know, in nature, if these adoptions happen they're either errors or the mother involved has been biologically primed like she's lost her own litter or something to mother so for us this is one of these things our our ability to adopt and change and love and grow this new brain just by willing it to be that's a really uniquely human thing you know this information would be very useful i think for prospective adoptive mothers because they tell you when you're getting prepared for adoption not to think that you're going to feel like this child's mother right away but they don't explain the neurology behind it and the hormones. I think it would be very helpful to have that understanding when you go into it because it is a shock. It's a shock when you have been wanting to, you've you've been waiting for this child, you've got all these expectations and all this hope and all this love ready to give and then you you don't feel the same because you're not chemically prepared. Yeah, it takes it takes a long time. And in a way, it's like kind of what, you know, some dads too. you know, they may not have that bold over feeling, you know, even a biological dad that the the mom is like immediately obsessed by the bio kid and the dad has to kind of sit patiently Mm -hmm. and wait for that to overcome him and to transform. And, you know, within a year, you know, dads really can give moms or even less a run for their money in terms of like all kinds of skills. And, um, but that's, you know, basically they have to put their mind to it. You have to put your mind to it to grow this new mind. As I'm sure you're aware, we're in experiencing a, a deep baby bust and um, fertility rates are the lowest they've been in decades. And I think this trend is global too. Does the science in your book explain that or, or, or does it offer something that could help correct that? Well, I mean, one thing that I learned in the in the reporting was you know how sensitive mothers are to environmental conditions and how we really can make a better world for the mothers that we do have the dwindling n- number of mothers by you know making kind of key policy changes and then also by like functioning better as communities that said um 
I guess when I read these stories about um, the birth deficit and, you know, women's rationale saying that, you know, oh, you know, we can wait, we have better birth control, you know, we're going to save up our pennies and stuff like that. I guess for me, it just, it there it be there's a lack of understanding, I think. It's not like having a baby is not like taking out a mortgage or something, some kind of like sign on the dotted line paperwork kind of thing that you're doing. It's actually a stage of development. And so I think it can be kind of strange to postpone that as long as you possibly can and then suddenly you know discover this whole new side of yourself like I worry that people if they become mothers very late that they might not be able to have the number of kids that they want to have um, not understanding how powerful this is and I think that there is just kind of a fundamental ignorance of the scientific principles involved that moms are actually like scientists see motherhood as a stage of the most profound stage of adult development there there is. It's something a lot more like going through adolescence than it is, you know, signing a mortgage document or something like that. And I think if people were to understand that actually I'm not just going to have a baby, I'm going to become a new person, they might maybe make a little bit more space for that in their life plan. I love that, Abby, that it, you become a new person and how significant that makes it, uh, how, how significant it should be for the whole society. You know, there was a piece in the New York Times you probably saw um, by Elizabeth Brunig. She talks about becoming a mom at a young age in a, you know, coming from an elite education and being a little bit outside the norm in terms of when she had her children. And she basically makes the same argument. It's more of a pop culture argument than a scientific argument. But she basically talks about how she just sort of changed or allowed herself to change and adapt into the role. And, and, and she didn't write it in a judgmental way saying there was, you know, this was a better time than another time to have children but I thought she made an important contribution which resonated with me because I had kids starting at an age much younger than most of the women where I live and um, which is basically the same thing that you're saying which is that if you allow yourself to if you allow it you know you really do kind of develop as a person with you know the process of becoming a mom and so I think it's a great thing that your book kind of comes alongside and offers all of the the science there for people to see. Yeah, I think that there's just a lot of kind of implications. Like I just had uh, a baby, uh, my fourth baby at um, age 39. And I just, one of the things about that was just kind of thinking like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to have, you know, no matter what happens, I'll have 10 years less of my life to spend with this person. And I just feel like that kind of feeling doesn't necessarily cross people's minds when they're like, you know, sitting back on the couch and drawing up, you know, what they want to do within the next 10 years, like this, this urgency, how rewarding you will find the child to be, how the child will trump a lot of other things that were your source of reward, just like, for, just like for rats, how suddenly like babies beat Charleston shoes. And I just think that like, we don't think of ourselves as being plastic in that way. And I think if you've been an adult for 20 years without kids, and you have a kid, it could be absolutely wonderful, but you have to be able to give yourself the time and space to navigate that. And I think you're right that, you know, nobody's saying, I think that having a baby at 20 is better than 40, but I think the appropriate understanding of how your biology is evolving in all of this is just something that not that many people think of because we are kind of thinking of ourselves as being the master of our own destiny when really 
this process is changing us. It's like throwing out the map in a way. And Abigail, what about the overall, um, the way it, it changes society, the fact that, that women, girls become women, then they become mothers and they become other-centered. If as a society we're choosing not to go down that path, because we're not, that's what the, the, the statistics <laughs> show, what does that do for a society where there aren't uh, a, a, a majority of people becoming other-centered? Well, I, I think that, you know, I guess the answer is I don't really know. I didn't write that much about this. However, I I have just seen some really strange things coming out of um, Japan, a society that is a little farther ahead of us in terms of a plummeting birth rate and, you know, the statistic that you see popping up that more... Um, adult diapers, like, you know, the diapers for older people are sold in Japan than baby diapers. And you see a lot of strange things happening, like, you know, this obsession with technology, especially these robots that are meant to not just care for the elderly, but to offer like a love and companionship for the elderly. And there's even one really interesting piece, maybe in the Times, about a woman who was living in this village full of just old people, and she made dolls, very large dolls, instead of mm. children. And so So I think in a way, you know, we are, and as, as mammals, we are wired to love children and have children. And I think sometimes objectively, you know, with all the other things that we juggle, it makes sense to say, oh, not this year, maybe next year and, or maybe never. But I also think that there's kind of emotional consequences for that, that we're just starting to appreciate. And I will say that in Japan and these other places where countries are experiencing these birth uh, drops that you, the United States is beginning to get into now they started to treat their moms a lot better mm. <laughs> so like they, you know there, there's you know people are offering these great incentives in places like Italy like if you have three children you get like a big chunk of free land in, in other places you get a lifetime pension if you have a lot of children and I think that like they're not taking moms for granted so much anymore because moms are throwing in the towel and I do think that like that's because in a lot of corners of the world, including the United States, we've made motherhood um, pretty unnecessarily miserable. And one of the fascinating things that I learned in my reporting was that postpartum depression rates and also infant temperament characteristics vary globally. And that suggests that like societies and the way they build themselves can change the experience of motherhood and lead to more postpartum depression, which can lead to more irritable infants. And these are things that you know, you wouldn't be aware of necessarily if you're just like a mom walking your stroller in your neighborhood. But these scientists who are able to take a global view can show that not only do um, mothers have some power over how they, you know, become mothers, but larger cultures can really make or break mothers in the way that we treat them. Well, Abigail, thank you for joining us today. And I think that your book, I think it can incentivize people to go for that great adventure of motherhood when they understand it as Uh, this fabulous transformation where you become a new person. It's really a, a fabulous way to think about it, no? As something that um, it makes it even a greater adventure than just saying, oh, like you say, it's not a, a financial calculation or a calculation of time. It's really this wonderful um, moment where you shed all your old self and, and gain a new one. Exactly. It's, it's actually can be very exciting. Well, thank you, Abigail. We really enjoyed having you. And um, maybe you'll come back again and tell us more about mom jeans later. I'd love that. Thanks, guys.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm very happy to have uh, a repeat offender, as we say sometimes on the show, <laughs> Father Jeff Kirby. He's uh, back on with us to discuss a new book. I don't know where he finds the time. Way of the Cross for Loved Ones Who Have Left the Faith. So, Father, thank you for joining us once again. Thank you. It's good to be back on the show. I happen to love the Way of the Cross, but I had never connected to connected it specifically to loved ones who have left the faith. Why did you connect these two these two things in your book? Yes, there are two big uh, parts. You know, first, uh, theologically, the Stations of the Cross is the devotional presentation of of our Lord's Passion, which is the very means by which we have all been brought um, back to the house of our Father, the way that we have uh, the opportunity of, of salvation. So, so in terms of the devotion itself, it was theologically spot on, like. Because literally by that way, we have been brought back. But also personally, I have a strong devotion to the station. So whenever I have uh, some dilemma, I have to make a decision or there's some heartache, I just walk the stations. I love them because it not doesn't include vocal prayer, but also we get to involve our bodies. So the, our whole selves get to be a part of the prayer. I tend to be an active person, so I very much like the stations. So, so I just kind of merged my own personal love for the stations and then this theological perspective into this little devotional. And I you know, wanted to bring that forward because I just thought this is becoming a major problem. If you can imagine in almost 14 years of priesthood, the love, the, the fact that loved ones have left the, fact, the practice of the faith or left you know, belief in God is the number one pastoral grievance and concern of people that I have seen. So of all the issues that, you know, are pastoral and that a parish priest might have, might have to deal with, that has been the number one. Wow. You know, I don't think people would guess that. Think You know, so many tragedies and, and problems and things that priests help us with. I wouldn't have guessed that that would be the, the main concern that you hear over and over again. It is. And, and, and I think in large part because of, you know, the, the real concern in terms of eternity. You know, if someone's away from, you know, belief in God or the Lord Jesus, or the practice of the faith like loved ones really grieve like what will happen when they die like where, where are they going to end up will they be with me in heaven and I think you know obviously the other concerns throughout life like you know from our faith we have mercy and the opportunity to start over you know, a person doesn't have that they live under guilt right? or hope it's a powerful gift of faith is to have hope and those without faith uh, that hope is, is not grounded in, in a, a supernatural worldview and of course eternity itself like, you know where will this person end up so I think these these are the things that kind of push the pastoral concern or anxiety among people and it's, uh, it's spouses adult children grandchildren it's, it's dear friends beloved mentors so all the areas that's why i wanted to use a loved ones for the stations because it can include a whole array of different relationships you know all those things that you mentioned are the most important ones for example eternal life and how difficult it is to get there successfully without the aid of the sacraments and the faith but one thing that worries me very much as a, as a mother, and I know it worries a lot of other parents, is when they see their children falling away from the faith, they also consider all the terrible material things that happened to someone's life when they're not anchored in the timeless truths of our faith. What, how easily they can be uh, you know, dragged away by all these different... Uh, and, and the way the culture is getting worse and worse. So we have le- yes. when you don't have the faith, you have less defense. Absolutely. We, we are hardwired as human beings for worship. And, and if we don't worship God, we are going to worship something else. So whether that's ourselves or wealth or, or popularity or, you know, esteem of, of our neighbors, like whatever it is, like, you know, <laughs> choose the idol, right? Mm-hmm. But we, we are made for worship. 
it's, it's not will I worship or not. It's what am what am I or who am I worshiping? So, so if someone's away from the practice of the faith or belief in God, then to your point, they will worship something else. And, and oftentimes, it's it's not uplifting. It's not supernatural. It's not something that's going to make them a better person. Mm-hmm. Father, do you think that the so it's a it's a it's a sad reality that that the church loses many faithful every every year more than convert uh, and more than are born maybe I'm not sure about that statistic maybe you can help us there but what are we doing wrong one of the things that that strikes me that we're doing wrong and correct me please father is that the church very often doesn't doesn't present a, a compelling vision of Christianity a, a, a vision to children that that asks them to be noble and heroic it sort of gives them the same sort of um, um, pabulum that, that that they get other places sort of yes. you know with, with like a you know oh love your neighbor be kind be sweet you know when maybe young people are ready to be heroic and ready to do great things yes yes very much and and to help with some of the stats uh, for every one convert that we have we lose six members oh, wow, to the that's church terrible. And that's before the pandemic, and, and it's speculated now. Of course, it'll take some time to, to properly assess, but uh, right now it looks as if 30% of our belie- of believers will not return uh, after the pandemic. So as we are emerging from the pandemic, you can imagine uh, 30 people will not 30% will not come back. Now, those numbers still have to be checked with with Pew uh, reports, but but even before the pandemic, one in every, for every one convert, six were being lost. So there's a major hemorrhaging in the church. Now, that's the Catholic Church, um, but that's also just organized religion. And to your point in terms of why is this happening, two things that, that Pew Research is telling us, if if children are raised in a particular way, it lessens the likelihood. I mean, sometimes up to like 80% that they will leave. And the two things we're being told that can lend stability in terms of someone's perseverance in the faith is first a developed understanding of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, so the, the, the person, the young person has been led to understand the sacraments in terms of relationship, uh, the role of prayer, virtue, selfless service. So that, that's the first one is, is that the person in their own heart has come to realize that Christ is someone that they are in a relationship with. And the second is a stable Eucharistic community, which means predominantly the family is a part of one community. You know, I know that oftentimes, you know, there might be some movement like, you know, there's a you know, vacation or something like that. that. That's not what the stats are referencing. It's just the reality where some places families literally bounce like you know there are this parish one weekend this parish another this parish another and so on and and what it comes across as to the younger generation is this is a duty that we have to do right whereas in a stable eucharistic community the young person has come is known by the community they come also to know the community so there's this whole developed life and understanding of the sacraments um and that that those two parts like you know, looking at the big picture, if we want people to stay in the church, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and, and a sustained Eucharistic community, sustained Eucharistic community. So those are the two things that we can do um, in terms of, you know, for, you know, forming and, and nurturing young people, but also like in our own discipleship. Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know <laughs> if we get away from a community and we start to feel like we're a lone ranger or a lone wolf, and then we don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ and the sacraments become this kind of 
hold the duty, well then it's just a matter of time before uh, anyone can, can find themselves away from, from the faith. Uh, and to that point, let me stress that we are told by Pew Research that it takes the average Catholic, if you can imagine this, two years to come to a decision to leave the church, right? So for two years, they're slowly separating themselves. You know, so maybe they don't, they stop going to Holy Days of Obligation. They start becoming sporadic with Sunday worship. They're not going to confession and so on. And then something big happens, like some excuse, right? This is the, the, the basis of, I left because Sister yelled at me or the priest was rude to me or something, right? There has to be something that marks or justifies in their mind why they can leave because they're slowly stepping back. I mention that because that's where a devotional like this can come in, that if we start to see that in our loved ones, we can begin to address this, like, hey, why, why aren't you going to Holy Days, or when was the last time you went to confession, or things of that sort, to, to begin to see you know, these, these signs that someone is starting to slowly step away and begin to address it before they really fully leave the church. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm happy to have Father Jeff Kirby on with us. He's the pastor of Our Lady of Grace Parish in Indian Land, South Carolina, and the author of several books. We're talking about his book called Way of the Cross for Loved Ones Who Have Left the Faith. Father, I always uh, do the Way of the Cross with regularity during Lent, and because my my church that I go to every day, they they do it um, on Fridays during Lent. Uh, you know, and there's always a big group of us, and I do. I love the Way of the Cross, <laughs> just like you. <laughs> and uh, I I always say after. I said, I must remember to do it on Fridays, and then sometimes I don't, but uh, often I don't. But yeah. it, I love, you know, you were talking about how it's a, a prayer that we do with our bodies, not just our minds and our voices. And it's true, there's something so uh, human about that, that the point where we kneel, we express that, uh, you know, that the, the awe at the sacrifice on our knees. And it's it's really lovely how it affects our minds and our hearts. Yes, and, and very much I think can, can encourage us especially if it's a heavy petition. So someone who has left the, the, the faith and, and, and we are really carrying them with us to the stations, or if it's, you know, some decision that has to be made or some area of discernment, and, and we can just carry that with us. And, and, and just again, that, as we're both kind of expressing it's that engagement and involvement of body and mind where you know it helps us to feel like we're doing something in, in a positive way towards trying to understand god's will or to discern what he's asking of us uh, so I, I love the stations and, and and like yourself like you know that's great because the whole church participates you know in the stations the local parishes encourage it and so on and my parish is on our schedule and, you know, then there's that, well, where else can I do this after Lent? And, and, and I try, like, as you were mentioning, is that, you know, on Fridays, uh, because, you know, people can forget that if you eat meat on Fridays outside of Lent, you're supposed to do some other penitential act, mm-hmm. right? So, so if someone's eating meat on Friday outside of Lent, you know, then this could be a great penitential act, just walk the stations. And if someone says, look, I can't get to my parish church or I work on a different part of my city or, you know, you don't have to actually be in the church or be in front of the pictures. Like, you can just walk outside. You can pray the stations as you're walking in your neighborhood, you know, especially if the devotional, like, like the one that I've written, 
uh, has the pictures, has the images there, right? You can even if you need to, you can sit in your backyard if you choose to to do the stations that way. So, I think the, the stations lend themselves to all kinds of other opportunities outside of Lent, in particularly on Fridays. But again, it could be any day. If someone says, "Well, Mondays are really better for me," then do great, do a Monday. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. They're never it's, out of uh, place. <laughs> exactly, amen. Like do, do, you know, do this that they can help because you know they are a powerful devotion. Uh, they help us to encounter Christ and to walk with Him in this passion. And when we are suffering or grieving or confused about loved ones who've left, like how do they not believe in God anymore? How do they, how do they just stop going to Mass? It can be very perplexing. And so we can take that with us as we walk the, sta- the stations. Um, when we think about Jesus' suffering in the Stations of the Cross, which is really what we're doing, we're contemplating His Passion step by step um, in all its detail, its sad detail, it makes me, th- it, it always, it, it reminds me how patient He was with us. Um, mm-hmm. And and He's ex- exercising that same patience, not only with us, but with our the loved ones that we pray for who have left the faith. And, and I think that's a very wonderful connection to make, that God is tremendously patient with us, and we can see that yes. in His passion. Yes, and, and how we can imitate that patience, you know, to, to realize His patience with us as we pray for our loved ones in the stations, to, to know of His patience towards them. And then, for myself, it compels me then to be patient when loved ones have left the church and they, they want to be, you know, antagonistic or disrespectful or belligerent or just dismissive you know it can be very frustrating but by reflecting on you know patience compassion understanding through the stations then it's like okay well now i have the strength and the the grace and conviction that i need to be patient and compassionate and try to understand and get this loved one back uh, to to the faith and father what about in your book do you have the are the meditations with each station um around this problem this this problem that the book's devoted to yes yes in fact um (laughs) i want to warn some people because already in in the reviews of the book some have said that they have been moved to tears other people said they have felt very much compelled to go to confession because each of the stations in in this devotional follows the traditional breakdown of you know we had the the beginning the the naming of the station the, the the prayer you know, for to, to praise, uh, you know, the work of, of, of the Lord. And then there's a first part of each station that talks about, you know, our loved ones, like, you know, what they might be going through in light of the particular station. You know, so whether it's a loss of hope or, you know, not understanding mercy or, or the power of a, of a second chance that, that, you know, we very much believe as Christians. So the first part is then about our loved ones, like what does their life look like? A type of hell on earth that they don't have these aspects of our faith that give us you know hope mercy peace and so on and then the second part is for us like what have we done or not done that might have contributed so mm-hmm. you know, parts of the reflection is you know like was i was i not compassionate did i not go the extra mile to offer help uh, did i not seek to understand how they were suffering you know, and so on. So it addresses all the different areas depending on the station that might be our responsibility. So the second part of each station almost serves as a type of examination of conscience and what can what could I have done or not have done right, to help and then what can I do now? So the stations again, uh, people I'm very happy for because those came from my own reflections, my own prayer. And I'm encouraged that people find them them helpful and inspiring and, and convicting. A lot of people I know who've left the faith have done so um, 
maybe out of indifference or lack of conviction, but I also know many people who have left the faith because of some some trauma that makes them feel unworthy to to rejoin the people of God. So, for instance, yeah. abortion. Abortion is a very is very common. It's very it happens all the time, and and it wounds everyone involved in in the abortion. And, and sometimes in a way that that person doesn't feel worthy to come back to church to be a part of the, the human family of God. Do you, yes. is this addressed in your book that's kind of when, when, that, when the barrier of sin prevents us from coming, um, from rejoining God? Yes, very much. Um, you know, in terms of the you know, the weight of guilt or or self hatred that sometimes come with comes with a grave sin, uh, very much addressed. And, and particularly that that first set of meditations in terms of our loved ones, like you know, what does their life look like? So we can imagine like a Simon of Cyrene who helps the Lord carry his cross, and then you know, it's oftentimes in our discipleship, Jesus is like Simon of Cyrene. He helps us to carry the weight of the cross and. And if someone's not with Christ, and you know he cannot help them carry the cross as he desires to, right? Or, or the three falls during the station, where you know our Lord Himself, the way the cross just you know took him to his knees, and and in our life, like how often times because of tragedy or sin or you know heartache or betrayal, whatever it might be, where we have felt knocked to our knees, right? And and need the help of of God in order to get back up, and for the person who's no longer following the way of the Lord, they don't have that help. So very much it addresses all the areas, in particular the part, the role of, of, of guilt and of heartache, you know, to, to have a, a child die or a beloved spouse die or to have some immense tragedy befall a family or, you know, someone's life. Um, that can shake someone very much where they say, I can't, I can't believe in God anymore after this. So the stations, this particular station also addresses that. As well as, as you mentioned, you know, people disagree with the church or they have problems with their own way of life. or uh, So it, it attempts to be as holistic and generalized as possible. Uh, and, and the 14 stations allow a certain diversity in order to address these different parts of, of our fallenness. And Father, what is your favorite station? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I tell you, this is the funny part. I think it changes. <laughs> you know? Depending but, on, on your needs. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but I will say there's always a tenderness in my heart towards uh, our Lord meeting His mother mm. during His passion. You know, so that particular station is, is always uh, been a, very tender for me. You know, and of course, it particularly relates in terms of Our Lady can represent loved ones in general, right? So this tenderness of Our Lady who's seeing her son carrying a cross suffering, being mistreated, you know, and that she's there for him. And I think that's a, a powerful lesson for us all. Oh, that's beautiful, Father. And thank you so much for being with us today. We're all out of time. How can people find your book and buy it? Yeah, so it's available on Amazon or through the publisher, Our Sunday Visitor, or by any, through any uh, local Catholic bookstore. Now you have your own website, don't you? Yeah, so uh, frkirby.com, and we try to post articles and things that might be helpful to people on that website. Well, I'm, I'm sure our listeners will be going to it because everything you say is helpful, Father. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Please visit us again soon. All right. Thank you. Take care. God bless you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. 
And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as we encounter him work two dramatic miracles. One is the healing of a woman with a hemorrhage, and it's literally one of Jesus' most touching cures. Jesus was on his way with Jairus, the synagogue leader, to care for his daughter, who at the time was on the point of death. St. Mark tells us that a large crowd was following Jesus and pressing in on him. This happens in almost any big crowd. People were bumping into him left and right. Yet in the midst of all that commotion on the move, Jesus is touched in a very different way by this anonymous woman. And Jesus immediately knew he was touched differently. The suffering woman believed that if she could just touch the tassel of Jesus' garments, she would be cured, and she was not to be disappointed. Jesus, upon feeling his healing power go out in response to her faith, stopped and asked, somewhat remarkably, Who touched my clothes? It would be like if an ambulance driver speeding to attend to a 911 call all of a sudden heard a faint, friendly tap of the horn and then slammed on the brakes trying to find out who was trying to say hello. Jesus stopped, doubtless to the confusion and concern of Jairus, and began to ask who had come into contact with the hem of his tunic. It shows how big the crowd must have been banging into him that he didn't even see the woman approach to touch the edge of his garments. Who touched my clothes, he kept asking. Jesus was never interested in merely working miracles of bodily healing. Those were always a prelude to the greater miracle of healing souls. And that healing happens through a personal relationship with him. That's why he never worked mass miracles of healing, but always cured people one by one because he wanted to have that personal bond. So Jesus wanted to meet and enter into a relationship with the person he had just physically cured. After Jesus' question, the woman approached with fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him everything, including how she had sought to pickpocket a healing miracle from him without his knowledge. She was afraid not just because the stop she had caused Jesus to make was going to prove fatal for the daughter of the understandably impatient, powerful synagogue leader, but because by her touching Jesus with her effusion of blood, she was making him ritually impure according to the Jewish law and incapable without ablutions of entering the synagogue. That ritual impurity meant that she had been suffering not only physically for 12 years, but also socially and religiously. Because of her bleeding, she couldn't touch anyone and was basically cut off from human contact. She was even, in a sense, cut off from God by not being able to enter the synagogue. She probably thought that Jesus and everyone else with whom she would have come into contact trying to get to Jesus would have been furious with her. But Jesus would address all of those problems. He spoke to her tenderly, called her daughter, and said, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He made the miracle public so that she could be restored totally to the community, to the worship of God, and to a relationship with God in the flesh. The miracle of the healing of Jairus' daughter likewise began with a touch. Jairus, the leader of the Capernaum synagogue where Jesus was already becoming controversial, didn't care if the rabbis and the members of the community would criticize him for reaching out to Jesus, who was already highly suspect in their eyes and persona non grata in their house of worship. 
Jairus loved his daughter too much to care about his career. With fatherly abandon, he ran up to Jesus, threw himself at his feet, doubtless grabbed on to them, and as St. Mark says, begged Jesus repeatedly to come and lay his hands on his daughter that she might get well and live. Jesus, Jairus knew that there was a power to Jesus' hands, to his healing touch, and he wanted his daughter to feel it. And at the end of the scene, after she had died and everyone was mourning her death the way anyone would weep uncontrollably at the death of a child, Jairus would see that Jesus' healing touch was way more powerful than he had imagined, even more miraculous than he had just witnessed with the hemorrhaging woman. Do not fear, Jesus told Jairus. Only believe. And Jairus did both. When Jesus arrived at the house after the little girl had died, he took her by the hand, touched her, and said, Little girl, arise. In Greek, the verb is the same word used to describe Jesus' resurrection. Like in Michelangelo's famous scene of the creation of Adam on the vault of the Sistine Chapel, when God stretches out his hand and instills life into Adam, so Jesus' touch brings life into this little girl. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus would say elsewhere. And his touch contains within it that resurrection, that life, that total restorative power. The miracle of raising this little girl from death to life was meant to show what Jesus wants to do for all of us in this world and forever. The question for you and me is whether in our lives we humbly reach out to touch Jesus with the faith of Jairus in the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage? Or do we just bump into him, like all those following the crowd, who even though they were coming into physical contact with Jesus, were receiving none of his healing and transformative power? When we come to Mass and approach to receive Jesus in Holy Communion, do we do so with faith, knowing that we're touching far more than the hem of his garment, but receiving his whole body, blood, soul, and divinity within? Do we recognize we're receiving the same Jesus whose feet Jairus grasped? Or do we receive him routinely, without awe, without reverence, without hands or souls and cleansed by him in the sacrament of confession? Do we know and approach Jesus like he wants to reach out and touch us, that just like he did with Jairus' little girl, he wants to lay his hands on us as he does on the day we're baptized, as he does in silence in the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, as he does through the raised hands of the priest, giving God's forgiveness in the sacrament of penance, whereby he who is the resurrection of life wants us to share in his triumph over sin and death. Do we allow him to transform us in such a way by our physical contact with him in prayer and in the sacrament that we can in turn become the hands of the mystical body, burning with his desire to reach out and heal a wounded world in which so many are bleeding, in which so many, including kids, are dying physically and spiritually because they're not in a life-changing relationship of faith with Him who is the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life. So we prepare this Sunday to act on his words, do not fear, just believe, and proclaim with fervor our profession of faith. As we get ready to fall on our knees before him as he enters not Jairus' house, and not only a house of God, but enters under the roof of each of us and makes us a true temple, let us ask him for the grace to arise, to be raised up to the fullness of life with him, both individually and as a family of faith, that filled with a contagious amazement like all those in Jairus' house after the miracle, others in seeing our awe might hunger to follow Jesus to where he wants to touch and change them too. Jesus indeed rescued us and will rescue us again. He loves us too much to leave us hemorrhaging and dead. He's reaching out to us this Sunday. Let's reach back and receive his grace, never to leave his restorative embrace. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. 
And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 